Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 18th of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans and Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern Approaches. Uh, well, we'll start off with inflation and let's just put this little video on screen. This is pushed out by the Treasury uh, this morning and uh, well, we've got higher inflation, but it's they're explaining why, Brian, and it's fantastic because it's all about everything except for the amount of money that's being printed at the moment. So it's all about uh, supply chains in Ukraine and the fact that uh, China is pushing a COVID zero policy and that's uh, dis dismantling supply chains and whatnot. Uh, but it's all about all these things except for uh, except for money printing. That's not mentioned, and we'll we'll talk about that again in a second. But you can see the style of it. It's, well, it's a cartoon, so it's yes. the government talking to children, which is the uh, wider population. Well, indeed, we we are all children as far as the government is concerned. But don't worry, uh, because the Conservative Party and the government are really excited that the labour market is operating the way it is. We've got 75.7% employment. Uh, we've got 7.4% growth in 2021. Of course, that's following a shutdown in the economy completely. Yeah, it's astonishing. Uh, and only 3.7% only uh, unemployment. Uh, and so uh, what was Boris saying about this? Great news that the unemployment rate is at its lowest rate since 1974. Uh, we know that work is the best way for people to support their families. So we remain focused on supporting more people into jobs and filling vacancies through schemes like way to work and growing the economy. Uh, but the problem is that this is not really good news uh, because there are now more job vacancies uh, than there are uh, victims to put into the jobs. Uh, and of course, that means uh, that it puts pressure on prices. Um, so here is uh, Darren Morgan from the Office for National Statistics. And he says, right, half a million more people have completely disengaged from the labor market since the beginning of the pandemic. So this seems to be a combination of people uh, who saved quite a bit of money, people in their 50s and early 60s who saved quite a bit of money during the, the lockdowns because they weren't spending it as they had once done uh, on things like transport and so on. And they suddenly found themselves uh, with some savings. And so they've, they've taken themselves out of the labor market by maybe taking early retirement, for example, but also quite a number of people that have left uh, as a result of, well, it's being blamed on Brexit as well. Um, so in other words, there are lots more job vacancies than there are people uh, in the work. And that, of course, means that employers are sort of forced to put their salaries up uh, in order to try, keep, try to keep people in positions because there aren't the people available on the job market to fill those positions should they lose an employee. Uh, and so as a result, uh, salaries, uh, average total earnings for March uh, had gone above, uh, the, the rise had gone up above 10%, the growth in average total earnings. Um, so um, as David said on Monday, we are looking very seriously at uh, stagflation. Um, but uh, don't worry, because the Bank of England has solutions, except it doesn't. But what are the implications for, for us, for the average person in the street? Of course, it means higher prices everywhere, uh, but not least uh, with respect to uh, food. And Andrew Bailey was speaking about uh, all this, all these problems uh, to the Treasury Select Committee on Monday afternoon. And uh, well, this is what he had to say. On the overseas side, I think we have risks from all the things we have at the moment. So clearly we could get more supply chain disruption in China. Ukraine, I'm afraid, is then is the big one in a way, which, and, and I'll boil that down to two things. One, 
is obviously is an energy a further energy price shock. I think that would now come more from the cutting off of gas and distillate surprise supply. So that's distillated products like diesel. Um, both sorry, Ukraine and Russia, I should say here, because it's a combination of the two of them, obviously. Um, crude oil isn't so much the issue, I think. I think it's it, it, it's what would happen from a disrupt, you know, a disruption. And then I'm afraid the one that I, I'm going to sound, I guess, rather apocalyptic about is food. Mm. So when I was I was in Washington at the um, IMF World Bank Spring meetings a month or so ago, and you know, we had the Ukrainian finance minister there. I did I did spend most of my time in meetings. People think I spent most of my time walking out of meetings. I didn't actually, but only when only when the Russian finance minister came on. But um, I have to tell you that I mean I think this is very this is a big concern because I think two things that the Ukrainian finance minister said. One is Ukraine does have food in in, in store, but it can't get it out at the moment. Two, while he was optimistic about crop planting, you know, as you know, Ukraine is a major supplier of, uh, of, of uh, wheat, major supplier of um, oil, uh, of cooking oils. And he said, you know, he's, he was pretty optimistic about planting, interestingly, but he said at the moment, you know, we have no way of shipping it out. Uh, as things stand at the moment, it's getting worse. And that is a major, major worry, and it's not just, I have to tell you, a major worry for this country, it is a major worry for the developing world as well. Uh, and, and so if I had to sort of, sorry for being apocalyptic for a moment, um, but that is a, that's a major concern. Well, he, he doesn't feel, fill me with confidence in any way, uh, Mike, I, I would say. I'm sure he's a man who's never been short of food. Um, but uh, how are we solving the food problem in Ukraine, pumping in more weapons? Well, you, absolutely. This is absolutely right. And uh, so just to, to reinforce this point, uh, this government, the British government, has is in the process of shutting down the British uh, growing industry uh, through its environmental schemes and through encouraging people to leave the farming industry uh, in the full knowledge that uh, the sort of single point of failure, which is Ukraine and Russia, um, that there was going to be conflict there because they were claiming there was going to be conflict there for some time uh, already. So if you remember from Monday's program, uh, we were showing a little uh, video from Harry Metcalf, Harry's Farm YouTube channel, uh, making the point that his grain, uh, his grain, um, uh, the guy that buys the grain from him, sorry, I can't remember the term off the top of my head, was saying a million tons uh, of grain less in this country as a result of the government's environmental schemes. So for Andrew Bailey to say that he's feeling apocalyptic about talking in terms of apocalypse uh, at a time that government policy is doing that, well, we know who to blame. I mean, these guys know. He, he was saying in that that he couldn't have predicted the Ukraine conflict. They absolutely could have predicted that they were predicting it. So, uh, you know, this is a policy decision. I'm going to say they were planning it. Yes. That's for another time. Yes, indeed. Well, look, uh, let's move on then to uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, and Liz Trust was giving a briefing on this in Parliament uh, yesterday. And uh, well, let's just briefly listen to what she had to say. We must restore the primacy of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in all of its dimensions as the basis of the restoration of the executive. And we will do so through technical measures designed to achieve the stated objectives of the protocol, tailored to the reality of Northern Ireland. We will do so in a way that fundamentally respects both unions, that of the United Kingdom and of the EU. 
and we will live up to our commitments to all communities of Northern Ireland. So I'm going to ask Alex uh, for a little bit of comment on this in a second. Because, uh, Alex, how do you actually uh, make a commitment to both unions uh, and still uh, maintain any kind of uh, with it, maintain a position within international law? Well, you can't, Mike, because this is a an etymological, a, a, a verbal sleight of hand. One union. Okay, both entities call themselves unions, okay, and the EU has regularized this in recent years after 17 years of an irregular situation after the Treaty of Lisbon. It now says in its uh, own international legal documents it's a union. But the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is a state which is a union. It's got an executive, it's got a head of state, and Liz Truss is its minister. She's loyal to it, allegedly. The EU is a supranational body. These are chalk and cheese. You cannot. Uh, have the same uh, undertakings to both. To this day, the European Union is itself a treaty organization of member states. When it when the chips are down, it's the member states that to this day uh, fuel what the EU does in international law. So there is no parity between them. And this is the first time I've heard Her Majesty's government talk about the United Kingdom and the EU as the two unions, as though there were any kind of parity of esteem between them, to use an old Northern Irish phrase. Uh, and what do you take from that? that Her Majesty's government is at least as vested, invested in the future success of the EU commercially and in international and supranational law as it is in the plebs in Britain. Uh, yes. You know, f further fueling our suspicion that since 1947-48, when a lot of legal changes were brought through after the Second World War was allegedly won, um, that Her Majesty's government's ambitions, the City of London's ambitions, had become European and global in scope. Right. So in order to give the impression of protecting the union, uh, the UK government has announced a bill uh, which is going to sort out the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. And if you remember, just uh, in case you aren't aware, the Northern Ireland Protocol is all about uh, maintaining the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process uh, that was done to, to end the Northern Ireland Troubles. And it effectively established a border down the Irish Sea, which was what the British government said they would never do. But anyway, Liz Trust then went on uh, to talk about the bill that she's introducing. And she's saying the bill will ensure that goods moving and staying within the UK are free of unnecessary bureaucracy through our new green channel. Uh, this respects Northern Ireland's place in the UK customs territory and protects the UK internal market. So what she's talking about is a customs arrangement where you effectively have, uh, Alex, a, 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 a nothing to declare channel for people that are supposedly pushing uh, uh, goods only into Northern Ireland and not into the Republic of Ireland or other EU countries. Um, and uh, well, what's the response been? Well, as we'd expect, uh, here's Geoffrey Donaldson from the uh, DUP saying it's a good start, but not enough. So the DUP still refusing to uh, uh, help establish or re-establish the Northern Ireland ex Executive and the Assembly um, because they're saying that this is not going far enough. Um, but uh, <clears throat> At the end of the day, it isn't possible to go far enough and maintain uh, the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. You can't. Uh, I know that we have quite a few younger and foreign viewers who are completely new to this, but in 1998, the settlement brokered uh, with the presidency of a US senator was predicated upon the idea that there were two layers on top of the UK and the Republic of Ireland, in which the whole of the British Isles was a single custom zone. One is the 1930s uh, era common travel area, and the other is the membership of the 
European Union's institutions, which had various names through the years. Now, that, that for short, we call them the EU, but there's various of them. Now the UK's left one, but is by prior treaty committed to the other. So it's really the Republic of Ireland that has to face up to this. A few uh, dissident senior civil servants in Ireland were saying this. Ray, I forget his surname, was the main one uh, a few years ago telling Dublin it had no future in the EU because of this. It's, it's a can of worms that should have been seen to quite a long time ago. So, um, I mean, Dublin or the Republic of Ireland leaving the EU isn't an option, but perhaps the United Ireland is the only actual destination for this. Well, those of um, you who uh, in the audience who weren't following the last European Commission closely may not be aware, but we reported on it at the time, that when Juncker was the alleged boss of the EU's most powerful institution, the permanent civil service, the e European Commission, although technically he can be outranked by the member states at the council. When Juncker was supposedly Mr. EU, uh, his chef de cabinet, his permanent civil servant, was a German named Martin Zellmeyer, who was widely reported in Brussels as having said that England's price for leaving us will be Northern Ireland. Yes. OK, uh, right, let's move on then uh, to this in The Telegraph. Uh, in embracing Sinn Féin, Nicola Sturgeon has shown her true colours. I simply point people to this if they have uh, an ability to read the Daily Telegraph. I know that not everyone wishes to subscribe, but it's remarkable that uh, a middle-aged, quite serious journalist of Tom Harris's calibre uh, now uses such language, which I won't put on screen, but if you go into the article, you will find uh, language about supposed girl power uh, versions of Irish nationalism, because Nicola Sturgeon has done what neither the Labour Party, nor the Conservative Party, nor even the Scottish National Party and Plaid Cymru did during the Northern Irish Troubles, which is to throw in her lot with and endorse Sinn Féin. This comes from several years of diplomatic collaboration between Edinburgh and Dublin. And uh, in the Irish press, we have seen references to the Scottish Navy and the Scottish Embassy in Dublin and all kinds of nonsense. Uh, but this has been encouraged by uh, Sturgeon and her ilk. Uh, and now we get to the stage where the establishment journalists are saying uh, that Nicola Sturgeon has got a, a fancy uh, which, which she really needs to disabuse herself of and that it blows the lid on her own supposedly joyous civic version of Scottish nationalism, which as David Scott would say, if he's here, is neither Scottish nor national. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that uh, takes us on to Klaus Schwab. It does, Mike, because among the many people lately claiming credit for the um, uh, solution to the Northern Irish Troubles. We have had the United States, which did, as I say, play a role in, in the sending of a respected senator in 1998 to Stormont. We've had the European Union. We've had NATO, Johnny-come-late-list, none of whom are mentioned in the GFA, the Belfast Agreement, despite what's now bandied about this week. But uh, can you guess any other bodies which now would like to claim some of the reflected glory and bask in it for allegedly having solved the Troubles? Must be the World Economic Forum. Uh, quite right, so uh, uh, roll the clip. Dear Shapers, you are assembled in Belfast to look at the future of Europe. I was born before World War II, and of course I still remember very well the misery which can be caused by conflict. And after the war, my life was very much devoted to create peace, to stimulate reconciliation and to make sure that people understand each another. For this reason, Northern Ireland was always close to my heart. And I'm very proud of having been the first person who succeeded to bring for a very informal, 
I would say, nearly secret meeting, all the conflict parties in Northern Ireland together over 20 years ago for a first meeting which actually happened in uh, Davos. I mean, this guy is uh, he's magical because he's, he's everywhere. He is. And uh, in the announcement segment later, I'll be referring to a discussion with Dolores Cahill and uh, a former loyalist paramilitary talking about this WEF getting into the new Stormont government in 98, just as they did to Edinburgh and Cardiff for their nefarious plans. But uh, he's talking about this was a 2018 address on YouTube. You'll find it under Global Shapers. That's the name of the channel. And if he's talking about more than 20 years ago, that takes it to back before 98. So he's one of the main people who was apparently angling before the big push at Stormont. But of course, there were many back channels between the British and Irish governments in, in the years before that, when they both parties were hotly denying it. But yeah, he really does get everywhere, doesn't he? Yes. Uh, now, one of the really uh, disgraceful aspects of the uh, Northern Ireland uh, peace process and the, the Good Friday Agreement was uh, the way that the that British Army veterans, British military veterans, have been treated subsequently because uh, one of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement was that uh, IRA uh, members who would be given an amnesty for any pros future prosecutions for any activities that uh, took place during the Troubles. Um, this has not been the case for uh, British Army veterans, and many of them uh, have been uh, hounded by the, uh, the legal system in the UK and Northern Ireland uh, to answer for alleged events in Northern Ireland. Uh, ben Wallace has now announced that he's pushing forward with a bill to try to put an end to that. So let's just have a listen to what he has to say here. In 1998, the Good Friday Agreement was an important moment for all of us. At its heart, the agreement was about peace and reconciliation. And for many veterans, we had to swallow some difficult measures for it to be a success, like prisoner release and the slow decommissioning of terrorist weapons. But we got there in the end. Now, 24 years later, the people of Northern Ireland are living with a better future and in peace. But constant reinvestigations and sometimes failed prosecutions have left a bitter aftertaste in many veterans who often lived in fear of repeat prosecutions. The bill today seeks to address that and draw a line under all of the legacy of Northern Ireland. This bill will deliver on the government's commitment to finally being able to provide certainty to Northern Ireland veterans and draw a line under the Troubles. This bill will provide immunity for those people that cooperate in the search for truth and justice and will ensure that also the victims get answers to their many questions. But the immunity is not unconditional. For those that choose not to engage, for those who have not provided information about the incidents that they were involved in, that immunity will not be forthcoming. Because we think it's important to draw the line under the troubles and deal with the legacy. But we also must recognise that justice is an important part of that healing process. I know as Defence Secretary, not every veteran of the troubles will be satisfied. But I think this is a strong step towards the finality of being able to finish off the unfinished business of the Troubles, address the answers that are needed by our victims, and make sure that all of us who served have a certainty in our future. 
Right. This is uh, Alex. I'm going to ask you for comment here because I think this is a pretty disgraceful situation. So what he's saying is that if uh, people cooperate with this this new uh, well, they're setting up an independent commission for reconciliation and information recovery is what they're calling it. If if veterans uh, co cooperate with that, then they'll be given immunity. If they refuse to cooperate with it, they will not be given immunity. But the fact is, uh, this is a, he says all about. Uh, helping the victims, uh, but there are victims on the other side as well. For example, largely forgotten in many cases are the disappeared, the people that the IRA disappeared uh, over the years from their own communities for allegedly collaborating with the British. During that time, they're not getting any satisfaction out of this this deal. Uh, and we must remember that the reason that, that IRA uh, prisoners and IRA members were given amnesty uh, was because Tony Blair uh, wrote them a letter in order to do that. So it's all extremely one-sided. And my position has always been that it's, it, that what's good for the goose is good for, good for the gander, as it were. You've got to have equality in both sides, and that is not there in this case. No, it isn't, because, and this feeds back to the make-believe uh, Celtic nationalism that we now see in both Edinburgh and Dublin and Sinn Féin in Belfast now. The idea is that, uh, that the struggle was a noble one and the Brits, in inverted commas, uh, although, of course, it, in many cases it was local guys, U, uh, UDA men, for example, UDR men, I beg your pardon, uh, also Defence Regiment men who were being assassinated, they just get lumped in as the Brits. The idea is there's no equivalence between them. These comfort letters, there's a recent book on that simply called Tony Blair and the IRA is at the root of the scandal. And not to make the comment too long, I'll just remind people that the reason Ben Wallace can talk about this, about you will be given immunity if you cough up and not if you don't, is because the courts, the judicial branch of government will not be involved at any stage here. From the PSNI, the police force arresting the veterans, to the charging by the Crown Prosecution Service, very similar in Northern Ireland to in England and Wales, the DPP arrangements, right through to the magistrate, who is a justice of the peace and therefore a member of the executive, not a judge or a jury, so not a court, not a judiciary, but it's all the executive from beginning to end. So government policy is one closed loop run through the Northern Ireland office in the same building as uh, MI5 at Thames House. The judiciary is not involved, and you could argue common law, English law, or in this case, common law of Northern Ireland, is not involved at all. Yes, and we'll just uh, remind everybody, of course, of Dennis Hutchings, who uh, uh, was prosecuted, or they were attempting to prosecute him under one of these uh, uh, attempts to, to, to get so-called justice for victims uh, of British military in Northern Ireland. And of course, he was effectively handed to his death because as a man in his 80s with stage four terminal cancer, he ended up having to go to Belfast uh, and take part in a trial, which was uh, a sham trial, really. Yeah. So there's a veiled threat with this proposal. If you don't take part, we're coming for you. That's the veiled threat. Yes. So duplicity from Ben Wallace. And of course, what has he been doing? Well, he's been the uh, forefront of piling the weapons into Ukraine. So little peace and reconciliation in Ukraine. I couldn't resist, Mike, taking your uh, picture of Boris from Monday's news. Um, your priorities are our priorities. Well, let's just remind ourselves that the public are not to have any priorities unless they're the government's priorities. And the government's priorities are for a weakened Russia and regime change. So as we report on Mariupol, just think about what the real agenda of the UK government is. It's not to support the Ukrainian people. It is to weaken Russia and bring down Putin. Uh, but uh, some of the uh, national, international press 
uh, have been carrying some images of the recent surrender as of stalled in uh, Mariupol. Don't think you're allowed to call it a surrender. Uh, well, we'll have a discussion about that, Mike, but I'm going to call it a surrender. Uh, from a trickle to a flood. This is something else that's not been talked about. Quite a few places covering the, uh, the drone footage, which uh, this is an image from. Uh, but what we need to know, of course, is that if you go into the small reports, what happened was that a number of fighters came out with a white flag. They surrendered. More followed to the extent that the commander of Azovstal was forced to actually call a surrender for all of his forces because basically he'd lost control of his own forces. But once he'd done that, that forced Zelensky and the Ukrainian government uh, to declare uh, the surrender, the so-called surrender. So the reports that are in the paper just skate over this, but essentially what started to happen was the fighters themselves took actions into their own hands and walked out with a white flag. And it's very noticeable that if you search online, you can find some of those fighters talking about being utterly uh, betrayed, feeling that they were betrayed by the Zelensky government's refusal to let them uh, uh, lay down their arms and walk out. So we've got two little clips here, which I'm going to play without any sound. There's nothing of any significance, but the first part of this one is the drone footage showing a slow trickle of people coming out. And of course, we can see by the stretchers that uh, there's a significant number of wounded coming out. And uh, the main uh, reports in the press uh, are talking about 300 altogether, although that figure has now drastically increased. Other footage starts to show the numbers. And you'll notice straight away that there are women uh, amongst the men. Interestingly, that lady had police on her arm. Whether she was police or not, I wouldn't like to say. What was the other lady? A sniper, possibly. Uh, but it's significant to uh, watch the calm professionalism of the, the Russians in the film clips that I've watched. I haven't seen any overt aggression towards these men, although one would have thought that the Russian soldiers might hold some of them to uh, account. Uh, all of the uh, footage is showing them behaving in a very professional way. But what are we witnessing? Well, clearly we are witnessing the Ukrainian fighters surrendering to the Russians and uh, they're being patted down before they're being taken off to captivity by the Russians. So there's no ifs or buts here. This is a surrender of the Ukrainian forces, uh, albeit that we can see that uh, this group at least are receiving uh, full and proper treatment by the Russians. None of this shown by the BBC or international news, because of course that's not the image of the Russians that we want to show. So let's move straight on to the second clip. And this just gives a little bit more detail of the uh, individuals in the buses being taken off into captivity. And uh, the key thing of this is spend a little bit of time and have a look at the people uh, because you can read an awful lot from the faces of the individuals that are in these buses uh, going for what must seem to them to be a very uncertain future. Uh, but there again is no doubt that the Russians are treating these people properly. Um, but here we've got an example. We seem to have a mixture with civilians and women mixed in with the fighters. Now, is this because there hasn't been a 
separation process at the moment? Or is there some confusion on the Russian side as to whether those uh, apparent civilians or people who appear to be civilians are connected with the fighters? You can see by the uh, tattoos and insignia, we've certainly got Azov Battalion uh, men on the bus. And if you have a look at them, some of them are smiling, uh, but most of them are in a very reflective mood. And I can imagine that they're very worried about uh, what is actually going to happen to them. In just a minute, we should see a little uh, uh, clip where there is a man with a British flag on his uh, sleeve. Um, so is this one of the British mercenaries over there? We can't be sure, uh, but certainly the mercenaries are not going to be treated extremely well by the by the Russians. And of course, at the moment, we've got the Russian parliament suggesting that uh, they ought to face the death penalty. Uh, the dog doesn't look too happy either. And uh, I wonder what the fate of that dog will be. But probably this last man that we're going to show sets the scene utter despair and I would suspect it exhaustion. Well, let's move on to how things have been reported. And the key thing that we can see straight away, we've just taken the Guardian here as an example, uh, but oh dear, we can't see the word su uh, surrender at all. Uh, something different has, uh, has actually gone on. Uh, so surrender is out and evacuate is in. And we can see here that in each of these reports, wherever they're coming from, and these are more worldwide, nobody wants to talk about the surrender, which is the reality. They're going to talk about an evacuation. Well, Alex, I should really defer to you, but I did a little bit of homework here because I thought it would be useful to have a look at the Cambridge Dictionary definition of surrender, to stop fighting and admit defeat and then they give an example the rebels ammunition is almost finished and it's only a matter of time before they surrender mm. so i think we're pretty clear that's what's taken uh, place in mariupol is surrender uh, but the propaganda across world media and particularly uk and us is that this is an evacuation as if these troops controlled the situation and the ukrainian government moved them from a dangerous place to somewhere safe. Very quickly, Alex, um, this, is, this is pure propaganda by the British government and the Americans, but we'll stick with UK at the moment. Pure propaganda by manipulating how events are described. Of course, uh, English is very rich in words, as I've said before on uh, many occasions to viewers. Uh, always bear in mind the legal, the the, um, the law of war aspects to this. If you surrender, that's the only word used in the Geneva Convention and other, other relevant treaties and documents, uh, then you have the protections and you also admit that you are a combatant. Uh, evacuation is PR language used for the home front. Uh, the second clip you showed, by the way, was originally from the deep, the Western deep state outfit, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and it came from their Ukrainian language service and was uh, footage from the village of Olenivka in Donetsk. So uh, this has been rebadged by Reuters, but it shows that uh, the West would like this um, heart-rending scene, maximizing what's going to happen to me, troubled faces, to be shown to Ukrainians and thence to be replatformed to the West. Well, thank, thank you for that. Well done for picking that one up. Um, surprisingly, Australia Guardian here seems to be able to use the right language. So if we pop this one on screen, what can we see? Morning Mail, Labour lead narrows, 
Ukraine surrenders as of style. So it is possible for people to describe things correctly, but of course not in UK. Uh, well, if we have a look at our own Ministry of Defence, here's at Defence HQ. Apparently the whole country stands with Ukraine. Our government and Ukraine are now in bed together, so it's almost pointless to have a different opinion. But I couldn't help notice that it says here that Defence HQ is the official corporate news channel of the UK Ministry of Defence. So does that mean our UK Ministry of Defence is now a corporation, Mike? I'm tongue in cheek a bit, but... Or, or the news channel is a corporation, Or the way. news channel is a corporation. I don't know, but uh, I, I find it, as an ex-serviceman, I find it offensive uh, to see this uh, yellow and blue on what should be an official UK uh, Ministry of Defence uh, um, posting. Uh, if we have a look at some of their intelligence updates, uh, this is the 18th of May. This is, this is uh, describing Russian forces around Mariupol. People can freeze this and have a look at it on screen or go to the source. Uh, but I'm going to tell you that what uh, they are not talking about is a surrender. It is as if it has not taken place. So this is pure propaganda by the UK uh, Ministry of Defence. If we go back a day, 17th of May, um, now we've got accusations that all the Russians do is shell residential areas. There's no mention, of course, of the Ukrainian forces hiding in residential areas, forcing this to take place. So this is more Ministry of Defence propaganda. Uh, but if we go back to the 16th, uh, what do we notice on the map? Well, this is really good because Mariupol has simply disappeared. It's quietly slid off the map and nobody wants to talk about that. Um, but um, we have some other uh, propaganda techniques coming in here because we don't want to discuss surrender, uh, but we're quick to say, well, are we going to start swapping these fighters? So this is Associated Press report here. But what is interesting is in this report is saying that there's now nearly a thousand Ukrainian troops that have handed themselves over, 260 left Monday, nearly 700 have left since then. So this makes the fact that we can't get the truth out about what's happening even more outrageous in UK. And certainly the BBC and the wider press should be utterly ashamed of themselves. But let's just remind ourselves with this little tiny video clip about what sort of troops we're talking about when we're talking about the Azov Battalion. It seemed like an odd way to spend a Saturday, watching the blood sports at a festival for far-right extremists. This was the summer of 2019, and I'd gone to Ukraine to learn more about these groups. From the crowds, one thing seemed pretty clear about them. They weren't bothered by the fact that this event was organized by the Azov movement a far-right group that has increasingly been linked to violence around the world. The shooter is linked to a 74-page manifesto filled with white supremacist rhetoric. FBI agents say he expressed a desire to travel to Ukraine to fight with a far-right paramilitary group. At least one member of an American hate group also trained in Ukraine with Azov Battalion.
So interesting enough, my Time magazine, major news uh, broadcasters, they know what these people are. They know they're extreme far-right far Nazis. And yet, as far as the UK and the BBC are concerned, these are acceptable people and uh, we can run propaganda in order to protect them. So I'll just bring this on screen because, of course, this is the state of the nation at the moment. I've described this as a forlorn Ukrainian flag in a Devon village in England, which is technically celebrating the surrender of extremist right-wing Azov fighters. So uh, people around the country flying these flags, they have no idea of what the true significance is. And we'll just end with the fact that uh, if you start to look for detail, uh, what is happening in the background is that the Russian advances are continuing with more towns captured. Uh, this is a, a slow process, but it's very slow and calculated to reduce uh, Russian losses. Uh, but what is happening is encouraged by Western support and weapons. A weakened Ukrainian army is fighting on. And of course, they're dying in huge numbers as a result of the Russian shelling. So we are responsible for that. Ben Wallace is responsible, Boris Johnson, and of course, the BBC, ultimately. Um, well, let's have a look at uh, Jens Stoltenberg. There he is. And he is so excited because the formal applications by Sweden and Finland have been submitted now. There they are. There's their bits of paper in their hands. They're, they're, well, more like cardboard uh, that they're going to hand over. Um, so... Uh, it's like a school report, Mike. Yes, isn't it? Isn't it? And and uh, the uh, the uh, Swedish uh, children. Yeah, they are children. Anyway, anyway, uh, I was more interested in what's the Russian response to this, and I'm very interested to see what Alex has to say about this. This is what Sergey Lavrov said. Lavrov said Finland and Sweden, as well as other neutral countries, have been participating in NATO military exercises for many years. Uh, NATO takes their territory into account when planning military advances in the east. So in this sense, there's probably not much difference. Uh, and then he said, let's see how their territory is used in practice in the North Atlantic Alliance. And actually, uh, Alex Putin then went on to make a statement that, that uh, which is a bit more, uh, giving a bit more information on that. He's very keen to see what happens in practice, what arms are moved into, into uh, Finland and Sweden and so on, and what, uh, how many foreign troops are moved into uh, Finland and Sweden as well. So uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on the, the Russian response, which seems to be quite muted at, at this point. It is dry and laconic. And of course, he is the foreign minister. Uh, it would be Shoigu, the defence minister, who would have chapter and verse on just what assets, uh, air, sea and land are going to be moved or retrained as a result. Uh, but it's at the diplomatic level that this is a big blow. Uh, to Russia, uh, because uh, the, the way in which Brezhnev and his Finnish counterpart, who was a long-serving president running the same length of term as Brezhnev, reached agreement in the 70s on Finland's neutrality, uh, even gave its name in both English and Russian to other countries. Finlandization in both languages means uh, Russia seeking to get buffer states around it for its own protection. That word is, for example, now used of Russo-Armenian policy. Uh, now, you know, the, the, the poster boy, for that policy has plopped into the alliance. So it's 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 a reverse on the diplomatic level, but you know, knowing Russia and knowing the Finnish relationship, the result will be measured in decades. So I'm not that surprised that, that the first response hasn't been explosive. Lavrov is known for keeping his cool. Yes. Okay, and that uh, I think this is a telegraph again, how Putin's disastrous war uh, exposed the folly of Macron's EU army. 
This is just to put that uh, screenshot on screen. I don't want to give much uh, credit to the Daily Tele Telegraph, particularly not Simon Heffer, who's uh, been dubious in the past. But you can see that the propaganda line being sold to Middle England here is silly little EU unification, uh, an initiative of the Continentals, don't you know? You know, nod, nod, wink, wink. Uh, but now Putin's lost the war. It shows that uh, the real thing to go for is, as the subheader says, a resurgent NATO, as if there were any difference between them. Because, of course, whether Britain is half in or half out of any of these bodies, it's Britain, its own coterie, that's uh, pulling the strings. Now, nearly, in fact, fully five years ago, I started talking about some of this. And people can find this on the U uh, uh, UK column website in the defence uh, topic area from the menu, or they can search for the words in the headline. And Sir Gerald Howarth who had been uh, largely responsible for the str uh, strategic defense and security reviews going through in 2010 and 2015, uh, cutting the Nimrods, for example. He was also chair at the time of the all-party all parliamentary Ukraine group. And this charming lady at the time, who was a change agent that I described, Svetlana Zolishuk, was his, was his co-star, his guest talking in Parliament in London uh, about the strategic relationship. And I'd just like to bring this paragraph out of my writing from January 2017. One needs to manufacture a bogeyman in order to gain even the semblance of public traction for a new military force where one did not previously exist, i.e. where people were not keen on war. And we know now, of course, that there's e economic uh, drivers for such a war to keep the Western financial bubble going, as Ian Crane was saying in his uh, in exactly the same month to uh, Patrick Henningsen in the 21st Century Wire review of 2016 forecast for 2017. And I went on, Ukraine, like Syria, represents an ongoing conflagration on East Europe's eastern periphery, both conflagrations being stoked by the EU, the EBBC and the Obama administration that is an ideal foil or catalyst for the rhetoric of the need for Europe to do defence jointly. So Britain has been well behind this, despite what Heffer is now writing in the Telegraph. It's not either or, it's both and, and both of them are stirred, actually, by uh, Britain. Now, a bit of this truth came on to Sky News recently, where the deputy chief of Russia's permanent representation uh, to the United Nations in New York was being interviewed by Sky News's long-term news anchor, Dermot Murnahan, and he managed to sneak in and refused to be uh, summarily silenced a bit of truth about the rhetoric which uh, Zelensky had brought out for uh, VE Day, which in the former Soviet world is marked on the 9th of Europe and is called uh, Victory Day rather than VE Day. And um, of course, there had been a, a share on Zelensky's uh, Instagram account of uh, a heroic Ukrainian soldier, which Zelensky had accompanied with rhetoric of we are fighting resurgent Nazism from the Kremlin. And so let's see what Dmitry Polyansky managed to talk about here. And of course, he used his iPad uh, to bring up material during his interview. The official page of President Zelensky. Here you can see it in Instagram, and this, this is a emblem. You see it like right now. I will I will make it bigger. So that's the emblem. Do you know what it is? It's uh, Totenkopf. It's an it's an emblem of if a German division, uh, SS division in the Second World War. So he published on this on the Victory Day uh, an emblem of fighter of uh, right sector okay. with this emblem saying that this is a symbol no, no don't interrupt me sir please this is a symbol of uh, fight against uh, nazism as he sees it this was deleted uh, after half an hour but of course we have a copy of this and do you know that this Totenkopf division 
was responsible for murder of 100 uh, Britons uh, in France uh, uh, in, uh, at the beginning of the Second World War. So it means that uh, UK now is covering Ukrainian authorities, which display uh, Nazi symbols uh, right. during the Victory Day. And these uh, Nazi symbols were used by the same regiments that killed British people. Uh, okay. Isn't that a little bit strange? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm only interrupting you because you've had, you, you, you've had your say, thank and we, you. we've run out of time, Mr. Pol Polyansky. Thank you very much indeed to talk to you. And I uh, should just say that uh, those uh, images that uh, were shown by Mr. Polyansky, uh, well, we haven't been able to independently... Uh, he wasn't able to verify because until Sky News verifies what a Totenkopf is, nobody in Britain uh, knows what a Totenkopf is, apparently. You can't take Podiansky's word for it. Uh, but the propaganda has spread even to the United Nations with its website, UN News, uh, sublet, sub. Uh, or strapline for that is global perspective, human stories. So this is clearly being written up by staffers of uh, dubious allegiance in New York or Geneva, and they have put out a, a press-style headline, a press release here, uh, Ukraine, colon, amid fresh Russian claims, there is no trace of secret bioweapons program. Ironically enough, this uh, photograph by the International Atomic Energy Agency nuclear rather than biological, different branch of what WMD, uh, has been used to illustrate the piece. And this is the abandoned town of Pripyat. Okay, it's in the Ukraine, uh, but this is, of course, Chernobyl fallout. That's a completely different branch of weapons of mass destruction. And I think maybe a junior staff has written this because mo much of this piece in UN News's own website is given over to uh, giving the US uh, representation in New York free, free reign to lament the fanciful claims and conspiracy theories of uh, Russia. Russia, we are told, repeatedly debases the UN Security Council through absurd meetings. And uh, we then see that there's a, uh, a well-worn pattern, misspelling worn, by the way, uh, in which Russian authorities accuse others of the comma, which shouldn't be there, of the very violations that they have perpetrated. Um, much of this is just a write-up of Western boilerplate under the uh, auspices of the UN, which Russia, of course, is a permanent member of the leading body of the Security Council. The giveaways at the end here, where actually it's, uh, I put it at the end of the slide, but it's the beginning of the piece. Um, amid, this is the, the, the propaganda set piece. Amid new claims by Moscow of a covert biological weapons program in Ukraine, the director of UN's de de Department of, oh, sorry, Office of de uh, Disarmament Affairs uh, affirmed that the UN doesn't know about it and can't find out about it. I've shortened the sentence for you. Not the UN can deny but the UN has no interest or funds to find out whether it's true or not. Uh, this was previously stated to the UN Security Council by the High Representative Izumi Nakamitsu. So you can see that actually it's, it's propaganda with nothing underneath it and pretty disgraceful uh, for the UN. Uh, well, the, the, the media war does go on. And um, I would point people towards this uh, piece, which, uh, you know, we, we're talking now about whether there was a long-term Nazi um, agenda uh, embedded in the Ukraine. Now, uh, of course, I didn't manage to describe it well on Friday because of microphone problems, but uh, Ian Davis's long piece is now up on the front of the UKColumn.org website. Um, I believe this particular re-upload of the 2014 uh, piece that should be uh, watched in in, in uh, concert with Ian Davis's piece. I think this particular re-upload is as a result of us having featured it earlier, but it's worth reminding people of this. So Bogdan Butkevich is a Ukrainian, I would say it's fair to say ultra-nationalist journalist uh, who speaks about killing 
a, half, a million and a half Ukrainians in Donbass, Ukrainian citizens of Russian ethnicity and language, uh, because they're superfluous and uh, they must be exterminated. But he actually says kill of witty in uh, Ukrainian. And of course, the, the, the rest of the uh, YouTube channel description here points out that the uh, Americans and the Dutch uh, funded this Romadske, one of the three TV channels that popped up at the time of the Maidan coup. Uh, Canada also helped. Um, and uh, of course, the Soros people did as well. So in a, a silent play out, because he's speaking Ukrainian, but with English and Russian subtitles, we'll see that Budkevich, at the time uh, of this coup that brought the current uh, administration to power in Kiev, was saying that the problem with Donbass as a region, this is the area from which Brian just showed the footage of the surrender, uh, not Mariupol particularly, but further to the north and east of there, certainly in the war zone now. The problem is that these people are superfluous. He uses the word zaimi in uh, Ukrainian, you know, uh, needless. And he says that this is not in Ukraine's national interest. So apparently being citizens and being born there doesn't count. They're not really useful. There's no quick solution, but these people are useless. There's no economic need for them. And however cruel it may sound, the thing to do is to kill them. And he, I stress, he uses the word witty to kill. And uh, a few years later, 2017, as I'm showing on screen at the moment, reported by the pro-Russian site Stalkerzone, but Budkevich and a fellow journalist of like bent were already being reported to the prosecutors and police in Kiev for uh, for incitements to to commit genocide. I'm not sure what happened here. Two months ago. Uh, someone on Reddit, notably an unsourced website, we always give that caveat with such sites, was reporting that Bukevich was falsely reporting that Ukrainians have heroically pushed the Russians substantially back from the Kiev area, but the photograph he'd uploaded was geolocated to the outskirts of Ivankiv, far beyond anywhere that the Russians had ever managed to get uh, at, you know, at, at, the, at, the, uh, at the furthest advance. We're increasingly being told, though, Brian and Mike, that it's all worth it, that all of this money, this big push uh, in, in money is worth it. So I'm, with an eye on the clock, I'm going to go quickly through some of the propaganda to that end that's being uh, featured in the mainstream media now in the West. And first of all, a very good read, which uh, Vanessa Beely's uh, website, thewallwillfall.com, has brought to our attention, is the, uh, the, the question that Butkevich was talking about. If we clear the people off the land in Donbass, can we sell the shale gas, even though it will make the land uninhabitable? So that's worth looking into. Uh, Defence One, meanwhile, is saying stop making a big deal about Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And I thought it would be worth pointing out the authorship here quickly. Uh, I'm not going to read all that, but uh, the, the, the boilerplate text here is all, you know, Sweden and Finland have to come in. The author is interesting. Elizabeth Braw is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And um, and look at the second paragraph here. Uh, Ms. Braw is saying that by merely cohabiting with NATO, by doing what uh, the foreign minister of Ru the Russian Federation uh, said, as quoted a moment ago, being de facto NATO partners, Sweden and Finland have made themselves, they put themselves in an untenable position. They have no security guarantees and that they don't, they're not covered by the nuclear umbrella. They're vulnerable to Russian aggression. So now we have to follow through. And... Uh, uh, if you don't get on board with this agenda, you will, be, you will be one of these unwitting helpers of Russia among the Western commentariat. It's boring that Sweden and Finland is jo jo are joining NATO. It's not a big deal. And you mustn't help Russia spin the tale that there's anything in this, apparently. Who is Elizabeth Braw? She's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She specializes in gray zone aggression, which, of course, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the US and UK are now talking about as, you know, the permanent state somewhere between war and peace. She was previously in Whitehall's own think tank, 
for military political issues, the Royal United Services Institute. And what is the AEI? Well, I've badged it here, Neocon Central. I have um, summarized the, uh, the piece that Ms. Braw wrote in Defence One as meaning, now that the Brits have teased the Swedes and Finns with NATO membership, Scandinavia is at risk of the big bad bear. So you just have to follow through. And that's their headquarters at uh, DuPont Circle, if I remember correctly. Now, Defence One uh, actually is headquartered in this building at 600 uh, New Hampshire Avenue Northwest in DC. And if anyone recognizes the look of that building, only part of which, of course, is where GovExec, the parent body of Defence One, is housed, it's no surprise because that's actually the south end of the Watergate complex and also right next to the Saudi embassy. It's been a while since I've founded that street, but I remember the, the scene there. And uh, GovExec says of itself, at GovExec, our mission is to inform and inspire government leaders and civil servants at all levels to achieve the goals of improving society. Lovely Garishian language there. Uh, he may have a comment in a moment on improving society by making Sweden and Finland part of a military alliance. Throughout our evolution, says the parent company of, of Ms. Braw's publisher, our audience, who are leaders across all facets of government and those in the public sector who support them, not the public or the taxpayer, remain at the heart of what we do. You're beginning to see that this is a self-feeding loop. Uh, to close this segment, NBC News, uh, a big, you know, a, a rough equivalent of the BBC in the USA, though funded differently, in its think section, has this piece by uh, he's not a specialist by background. He's quite young and a generalist, but he's become a military writer recently, Sebastian Roblin. Uh, he's talking about why U.S. military aid is working in Ukraine. So you can see that he's on the back foot and he's been briefed to tell us that it really all is worth it. The amounts are eye-watering, but it's all worth it. It's all spectacular, apparently. So $40,000 million is being sent to Ukraine. You played Rand Paul recently, who's referred to in this very piece by Roblin saying, are we crazy uh, to be giving this amount of money? Apparently, it's uh, much less than spent on Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam, which of course were whole generation wars. I think there's a hint there about how long the Ukraine war is going to last. But it's far more effective, we're told. And so a piece uh, of Roblin's article, which has been highlighted by the sub-editors, is that, watch the weasel adverbs here telling you how to think and what to think, Washington wisely arranged for Ukraine to receive old Soviet junk because they, the troopers could operate them rather than reflexively or by habit favoring US-made equipment. How noble, apparently, this is. And Roblin also tells us that uh, it's shifted to training, Ukra US has shifted to training Ukrainian soldiers in European countries how wise, how long-term, what a wonderful strategy. There is a, a vote which had nearly 10,000 um, votes I put this poll when I checked it last night. Should the US give mil more military aid to Ukraine? If you said no, you found that you were in a 5% minority and reprimanded for having a strong view on the matter. And uh, Roblin says that in the years to come, ah, another hint, uh, there will be long endurance combat drones, these because the Bayraktars are apparently not sufficient for all the purposes, as we've been seeing recently. And you know, really heavy stuff is going to come. Now, uh, the next graphic is actually from the uh, sorry that that is from Task and Purpose, explaining that military grade stuff in the US is admittedly just another way of saying cheaply made junk. So you can see that the uh, uh, the military contractors are winning both ways here. That's pieces by Jeff Shogol. But here we have the Washington uh, Post, and sorry that I haven't put the graphic on screen to accredit them, giving us an infographic on just how exponentially 
the spending has risen. This is the end of my segment finally. So you can see uh, a steady growth if you're watching with uh, with video uh, of the y-axis going up to four billion, a mere four thousand million dollars for the Ukrainians uh, military aid or lethal aid as it's bracketed since the start of the war on the 24th of February. That's going up bit by bit. But in a moment, the entire scale of the y-axis is going to be folded down to a point. So that's $3.8 billion within three months. But we're going to see in a bar on the left-hand side that for the previous seven years since the coup and since the journalists started calling for killing everyone in Donbass, the US sent just $2.7 billion, a mere $2.7 billion, nothing to worry about. And that is all paling now in comparison with what Congress has just approved, $20,000 million. Uh, it's all worth it, apparently. It's going up. Sorry. We, we, we had a, a slight technical problem. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll just repeat that. Uh, the key bit is that, of course, that uh, the best Ukrainian troops are being killed off at the front. There's no question of this. So we're then dealing with reservists and relatively poorly equipped and trained troops. And the weapon systems just mean that they are going to die in even greater numbers. There's no question of this because, of course, the Western nations, apart from their special forces, SAS for UK, don't want to put troops on the ground. They want Ukrainians to die. Yes. OK, well, look, we got to move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, or you could uh, pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but in any case, if you'd like to uh, share any material that you find on the various platforms, that would be of great help as well. Um, so where does that take us, uh, Alex uh, uh, Rumble? Yes, um, it's very gratifying to see that some Israelis have subtitled the entire uh, grand jury proceedings by Rainer Fulmich and colleagues. I hesitate to uh, to add that these are mock proceedings because there's a lot of supposed uh, truth uh, check, fact checkers saying that uh, this was a bogus grand jury, but it never purported to be a real legal grand jury. So on that channel that's shown on screen at the moment, there is Hebrew subtitle showing the penetration, I think, of some of the testimony by Brian and Debbie and myself and others and everyone else who spoke to Fulmich and Fisher uh, and uh, and colleagues there is what the beginning of the channel looks like. You can see uh, everyone who's appeared there is subtitled fully in Hebrew. So I think that's a particularly important audience in Israel in, in particular to reach uh, with, with such information. It's Galit and Adi, two Israeli activists who work as Hope and Talk, who are responsible for that. Most gratifying uh, to see. Sorry, Alex, just before you move on to Dolores Cahill there, um, I think the, uh, the correct term is runaway grand jury, isn't it? It is because, you know, a grand jury is either tasked by the legal system to look into whether that crime has been committed or not before it goes to a petty jury, a trial jury, or it gets together in any common law system and says, we think there's a case to answer and we need to find out what's going on here. And that is a self-directed or runaway grand jury. Every common law jurisdiction's worst nightmare because it's perfectly lawful for that to happen. Yes. In other brief announcements uh, on TNT radio, I have been speaking over the weekend to Dolores Cahill, a professor well known, I think, to most of our audience. And there were two 
one-hour episodes uploaded on Saturday, one in my own right with Dolores uh, talking about supranational law, among other things, and Ireland and in this, and psychological manipulation. And in the second hour, we were joined by a remarkable um, former loyalist paramilitary from Northern Ireland, Martin Snodden, who's had a very rich life experience in changing his path in life after his release. Uh, well worth going to listen to. Also, a couple of days ago, uh, Dan Astin Gregory, uh, 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 released a new interview with me uh, majoring on the Ukraine. And so that I'm not just plugging myself, I would also say that James Dellingpole's latest in the Dellingpod is uh, an interview with the Swiss military intelligence colonel Jacques Beau, B-A-U-D. Read the description on screen to see how impressive he is. And that's nearly two hours of solid detail on Ukraine from somebody that's completely outside my network and comes up with the same conclusions from another angle. So uh, it's not just uh, all of us, not just in the same bubble talking about these things. Uh, further announcements briefly from me is that up on the website now, Mark Anderson uh, has brought out a piece questioning whether cars are being slyly phased out, which we've put in the environment rubric. And that is part of the One World Governance series, which you can find from the series menu on the website, or by scrolling down the homepage and clicking on that uh, landing page icon for One World Government. Many articles by Martin Edwards are also in that series. And this is really happening locally as well. So a Kent viewer south of London pointed out that the uh, refuse ref collection trucks uh, in his uh, council area around Gravesend are already saying that it's safe to shop local. And he's questioning on my Telegram channel whether this is the fusion and transitioning of COVID policy to the 15 or 20 minute city that Mark Anderson is writing about. Um, also, since we had our last uh, theatre review, the first of what we hope will be more by Katie Jo Murfin, uh, a viewer has actually uh, done some art for us, illustrating the relevance of Animal Farm. That's, I think, sent or at least forwarded by Flippin' Eck on my Telegram channel, Eastern Approaches. Vanessa Beely on her Substack has published a lot of good things recently, in addition to what she writes for us. Two I draw attention to is a piece on the white helmets angle between Ukraine and Syria, and one on Washington moving to annex northeastern Syria, my proxy. A lot of good stuff that Vanessa is uh, knocking out on various platforms at the moment. And uh, one more from me, Chatham House, apparently it does it several times a year, the world's biggest and darkest think tank, senior to anything in the USA or Europe, uh, is calling for young uh, professionals and students to attend an online open day to discover more about life in this world-leading think tank, which steers the world according to City of London and Milnerian policy a webinar on the 26th of May. If you feel up to it in a, in a lawful and calm manner, why not join and see what you can wheedle out of them? Apparently, you can find out more about what Chatham House does, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and learn how to engage with this government steering body. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank, thank you very much for that, Alex, and uh, actually a, a, a gentle introduction into the subject of health. So we'll bring in Debbie Evans. Debbie, thank you for staying with us. And uh, I want to lead you off uh, with your excellent email to the Prime Minister, uh, because uh, I thought this was uh, a very plucky thing to do. Let's bring it up on screen and we'll read through for our listeners. Dear Prime Minister, under the Freedom of Information Act, I would be grateful if you would tell me the named individuals from the UK government, public bodies and private organisations who will be representing the United Kingdom at the World Health Assembly in Geneva, May the 22nd to May the 28th. Can you also, uh, could you also please confirm that the United Kingdom will have to act in lockstep with 194 other countries 
on the direct advice from the World Health Organization should they need to declare a public health emergency. This will be in line with the up and coming amendments to the international health regulations for the World Health Authority in less than two weeks. Thank you in anticipation of your reply. Uh, well, uh, Debbie, welcome. My immediate question is, have you had a reply? No, <laughs> is the very quick answer to that. No, okay. I haven't. But um, I... I'm very concerned, actually, that time's running out and I still haven't had a reply. Right. OK, well, we've taken people through through the text. Tell us what this email is about. What are your concerns and why did you feel it? It was so concerning. You should write straight to the prime minister for whatever that's worth. Well, yeah, my, my concerns are that um, as we as we've all been looking at the WHO pandemic preparedness treaty, it would appear that that's a bit of a decoy and that actually the international health regulations are being changed by uh, there are amendments that are going to be voted on at the World Health Assembly next week. Um, and if they're voted on, that means that where we've all been thinking, well, we'll wait until 2024 until this is rolled out. It could actually mean that things progress far quicker than we ever anticipated without seemingly our parliamentarians knowing what's going on and who is going to the World Health Assembly to represent the people of the United Kingdom. Well, actually of every nation, because it seems to be very secret. And this is going to be held between the 22nd of May to the 28th of May. And yet still, we have no clue who is going to be re representing the UK. So I thought, well, who better to go to than ask the Prime Minister in his private office? And his email of his private office address is privateoffice at number10.x.gsi.gov.uk. So if anybody else happens to know who our delegates are, I would be really grateful to um, to find out. Okay, thank you for that, uh, Debbie. And uh, what we're talking about here is really a power grab, an attempted power grab. We'll discuss it in more detail, but just to keep it really simple for people who may not have uh, come across anything to do with this, this is giving immense powers to the World Health Organization in, in order for them to be able to control what happens in a declared pandemic, whether uh, they were talking about UK, a series of country countries or worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a huge power grab and nobody seems to be or well, none of our parliamentarians, although I have to say I did email Steve Baker about 10 days ago uh, to ask him how parliamentarians felt about the fact that we'd voted Brexit. Uh, to retain our sovereignty and yet we were giving it away to Dr Tedros at the WHO and um, he did tweet Steve Baker in the last couple of days that he is going to uh, put an urgent question to the House with regards to this seemingly huge power grab hmm. by the WHO because this affects 194 countries not just the UK. Yeah okay right thank you for that well you've been very, very busy indeed, because you've also been emailing Professor Sir Munir Pir Mohammed, who is uh, the chairman of the Commission on Human Medicines. And he has ultimate responsibility for the safety of the country 
uh, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, around all, all matters to do with uh, vaccines. And um, you did get a response from this gentleman. Let's uh, have a look at what you said initially. You said that you were very concerned that the MHRA are reporting over 1.5 million serious adverse reactions and over 2,000 deaths. We're aware there's a huge underreporting of yellow cards and that you appreciate that these figures cannot be directly attributed to the vaccines equally without thorough and forensic investigations, we will never know. So some key points there. Uh, you went on, uh, I've been in regular contact with MHRA's Chief Executive Dame June Rain and have diligently watched every single board meeting. I'm concerned that a simple question is not being answered. I feel I'm being stonewalled. I was fortunate in being able to address my question to Jeremy Hunt MP when he was holding a meeting on patient safety. I am relieved that he too takes the large number of serious adverse reactions as very concerning. And uh, the question is this, please can you tell me what advice you'll be giving the MHRA with regard to investigating these serious life limiting and sometimes life ending effects? Will you be recommending a thorough investigation? If not, why not? Also, I would appreciate your definition of safe. I note the word safe must never be used according to the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry. Could you explain? So Debbie, you, as usual, were very thorough in the questions and the detail that you put into that communication uh, with the professor. Did you get a response? Eventually, um, after many reminder emails and uh, a few that he tried to fob me off with, I received a four page PDF the night before last, very detailed, containing all sorts of hyperlinks, but not answering my questions. And I've since found out that the letter that I know that you're going to show, I was very chuffed when I received it because it was written to me. It, it was obviously a detailed letter. So I thought, well, at least maybe he's he's going to answer some of my questions. I was upset to realise that he hadn't. But also I've now found out that one of our other UK uh, column viewers has also received the same letter as I've received word for word. So I'm assuming that this was just a Samunir um, of an evening deciding to reply to everybody with the same letter, but not actually to answer anybody's individual questions. Yeah, this was effectively a brush off. Now it's quite a long letter and uh, Alex has very kindly put this in a video form. So if I press the magic button, we should be able to scroll through this. It's quite slow, but you can see. And I'm going to get you to comment, Debbie, but just to show the audience uh, what sort of things are in it. He's put lots of data from the yellow card system. And this is really uh, filling it with um, information as a means of placating and sidestepping your question. So he's saying, well, the yellow card system, we don't know how many people knew about it, but we think it was enough. And we've recorded all this information. And because we've recorded it, essentially, uh, you can be sure that things are safe. So there's uh, apparently a detailed strategy by the MHRA on what they do with the data as a result of working with a working group. And of course, uh, one of the things that he does, which they always do, is talk about the number of uh, adverse reactions compared to the, of course, vast number of the vaccinations. 
Uh, I think that's a bit of a diversionary argument, uh, but it's also um, talking about what's been prevented. 230,000 hospitalizations have been prevented in people over the age of 45, while over 100,000 deaths have been prevented. Uh, where's the evidence for that claim, Debbie? Or those claims? No, there isn't any. There, there isn't any. And you know, when you look at that letter, and I know that we're going to discuss it in extra, and I've also written an article about this because my interpretation of it um, means, well, I, I believe that what he's saying, and I found it a struggle, I had to reread it, and anyone else that freezes the screen um, and has a look at the letter will come up with their own interpretation. But it appears to me as though he is blaming the death and the serious adverse reactions that we were looking at with regards to the vaccination as being caused by the coronavirus. So he would appear to be suggesting thrombocytopenia, myocardial infarction, cerebrovascular accident, um, all of these blindness, deafness, all of these absolutely horrific serious adverse reactions and deaths are caused by coronavirus. He also um, says that the MHRA are proactively recruiting 2,500 vaccinated women through the yellow card system. He also says that he's pleased to receive yellow cards. Well, for me, one, card, one yellow card is one too many. He's also using very nuanced language, coincidental, um, suspected, spontaneous all of this very nuanced language and you know what at the end of the day he is saying that his role and the mhra's role is to inform us of adverse reactions and to inform us of mitigations so what they do is they put on their website that they've seen cases of anaphylaxis or they've seen cases of myocarditis they've put it there They've advised us, so now it's down to us. So because they've actually reported it on their website, they're absolving themselves of, well, it would appear to me as though they're absolving themselves of in, all responsibility. And there's a big nuance of language as well, which I know we'll talk about in extra time because we're, we're short of time, but in the words efficacy and effectiveness. But I, I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about this in in um, extra time, but the, the, the letter is loaded with many more questions than answers. Right. Well, uh, uh, we'll just pop this on screen just to uh, emphasize, emphasize this particular point, because I, I knew, know that you were keen on doing that. Uh, and this is uh, the effect of uh, vaccines in pregnancy. So it says here regarding the issue of safety of vaccines in pregnancy, Globally, regulators have now amassed a huge amount of data from different sources uh, in women of childbearing potential in pregnant women. And this has shown that the COVID-19 vaccines are not associated with infertility, adverse pregnancy outcomes or fetal malformations. And yet the evidence um, from the yellow card system shows the exact opposite. It, it's yeah. extraordinary. I mean, where, where is this evidence? Where are the... We are still in clinical trial stage. There is no data on pregnant women. How can he state that categorically? I, I, I don't, I, words fail me. That, that letter, I, I honestly believe, 
needs to be scrutinized by everybody and talked about and discussed by everybody because the messaging that's coming through is not what we would expect. Right. But what you've achieved out of this, of course, is getting the man to declare his hand because there's a, a proper signature at the end of the letter, as we can show on screen here. Uh, to summarise, there's an intensive proactive monitoring of the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. And if a plausible link between any adverse event and a vaccine is identified, the product information is updated and risk mitigation procedures are put in place. But as you've said, there's no evidence of any form of investigation to ascertain whether those vaccines are, are causing the adverse effects and the death. So this, this is a FOB-OFF letter. And I'm going to say it's surprising from a man of this uh, background, because if you have a look at uh, uh, Professor Samanir Puramohamed's background, he is uh, an eminent professor, uh, but it seems on the subject of uh, safety over vaccines, uh, he doesn't want to tell the public the truth. That's what I'm getting out of it. But let's move on, because you've also been looking uh, at our old friend uh, uh, Bill Gates, and um, you point out here, of course, this man being um, uh, pushed in the press. So Bill Gates, honoured by the Queen, delighted to be uh, knighted. But here he is alongside uh, the infamous, infamous Mr. Epstein. And um, uh, what has been going on in government and the MHRA itself here awarded 980,000 for collaboration with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they're in bed with a very regulatory organisation that should be protecting us. But you're picking up on this, which is Bill Gates is now speaking out about his disdain for the World Health Organisation. Where does this lead us? What are you seeing? Well, what I'm seeing here is that he's coming out very publicly. Um, and saying that he believes that the World Health Organization is too slow, it doesn't have enough powers, that during the last two years, different countries have done different things, nobody's done the same thing, what are we going to do to make a, a global um, agenda so that everybody works together to prevent the next pandemic. And in order to do that, you've got to roll out enough vaccines to vaccinate the whole world within six months. So production of what is it 8 billion 7 point something billion our world population is at the moment we have to roll out of those in months and he suggested to do it the who have said well okay well we might have had a bit of a problem over the last two years so let's have some suggestions about how we can do things better and um one of the suggestions that seems to be really way up there on priority is Bill Gates has offered to fund the GERM team. And the GERM team stands for Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization. Um, he's agreed to put a billion dollars into it um, and then to fund it with the same amount, a billion dollars, for the next five years. And this is to take, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it and thinking, is Bill Gates actually going for a power grab of the WHO, you know, we're saying that the WHO are going for a global power grab, but who's grabbing the WHO? And the germ team would be set up by Bill Gates. He would employ 3,000 epidemiologists. He would set the whole thing up. And on his say-so or his team's say-so, 
advice would be given to Tedros and Tedros then would roll out that advice to the rest of the world, effectively meaning that Bill Gates is going to control what the World Health Organization are, are, are putting out to the rest of the world, which is really terrifying. So the germ team, meet the germ team, will be going to different countries searching for germs. They'll be playing what he's calling germ games. So this is a very dangerous game for the whole of the world if we think that one man is going to be taking possibly control, and that's just my interpretation, of the WHO. So we need to be keeping a big eye on the World Health, Organ uh, the World Health um, Assembly next week, because if this gets voted through, then it's likely that Bill Gates's germ team will win that right to make the advice available to the WHO. Debbie, and also, Bill Gates is, is also wanting to... He's The reason that um, we are seeing problems with farming and animals and food supplies is because he believes that animals are to blame for all of the pandemics and viruses that are there are around. So basically, if he can have a, a world where we don't need to kill animals, we won't get the spread of disease. So that's his theory around farm farming and diminishing farming and the production of meat. Debbie, thank you very much for that really excellent summary. I'll just jump back a little bit to stress to people how, how important this is because you picked up on words that were coming up around uh, between Gates and the World Health Organization. But have a look at this slide here. What, what are they really talking about? Well, the, the words, all encompassing words, are strengthening global architecture for health emergency preparedness, response and resilience. So this is security, Mike, isn't it? This is security, this is not health. And also, Debbie, um, you were very astute in seeing this. I believe there were some other people involved, but the clue to what was going on came out of this uh, report from the White House here, Media Advisory, second COVID-19 summit, May the 10th. Uh, the United States as first COVID summit chair, Belize, as CARICOM chair, and Germany holding the G7 presidency, Indonesia, etc., is going to hold this summit on Thursday, May the 12th, 2022, joined by a lot of other countries. But have a look at who's also included here. There's Welcome, there's Google, Find, Global uh, Alliance for Diagnostics, Open Society Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we've got a mix here of world globalists, governments, and foundations, trusts, and uh, corporations plotting this uh, power grab. So people can find this or freeze it on screen and have a look for it. But you've been, we'll end on this, but you've been very concerned to see that actually Bill Gates has also been working in the background by having cosy little discussions with Jeremy Hunt a man who says he's very concerned about vaccine adverse effects. Yeah, Bill Gates and uh, Bill Gates and Jeremy Hunt had a very cosy little interview, which can be found on YouTube. It was done in November, I believe, six months ago, uh, November 2021, um, at Policy Exchange, talking about um, the germ games. I'm, Jeremy Hunt was very, very keen 
um, on, on backing everything that Bill Gates was saying and was very supportive. And of course, we know that uh, as yet, Jeremy Hunt has done absolutely nothing with regards to my question about serious adverse reactions, because he seems far more interested in hunting for germs with Bill Gates. So that interview can be seen on YouTube if anybody wants to click into it. Jeremy Hunt, Bill Gates Policy Exchange. Right. And, and I, my final comments, because you're always pushing this at me, is that while everybody is heavily focused on what's happening in Ukraine, these very dangerous events are being uh, plotted, carried out behind our backs between national governments, that includes the UK government, the US government and Bill Gates, uh, with the agenda that ultimately Bill, Bill Gates' germ team could be the responsible agency for declaring a world health emergency. And they would then have the power to decide what actions each country took. It sounds unbelievable, but it's real. We'll cover more on this in future news programs. Um, Alex, we've got a couple of final slides here. We have indeed, Mike. And uh, I've been sharing these to my Telegram channel, Eastern Approaches, t.me slash East App. One is the 18th century Dublin writer Jonathan Swift on, before it was called PR, the satanic nature of, of public, public relations. Perhaps proportional representation is equally satanic, but it's on public relations. Uh, and Swift wrote, although the devil be the father of lies, he seems like other great inventors to have lost much of his reputation by the continual improvements that have been made upon him. Who first reduced lying to an art and adapted it to politics is not so clear from history, although I have made some diligent inquiries. I shall therefore consider it only according to the modern system, as it has been cultivated these 20 years past in England. The moderns have made great additions, applying this art to the gaining of power and preserving it, as well as revenging themselves after they have lost power, as the same instruments are made use of by animals to feed themselves and to kill others. Uh, PR, as he described it before it was called that, can conquer kingdoms without fighting. We've just seen that in Brian's segment, and that sometimes with the loss of a battle. It gives and resumes employments. It gets people work. It can sink a mountain to a molehill and raise a molehill to a mountain. It has presided for many years at committees of elections. It can wash a blackamoor white, make a saint of an atheist and a patriot of a profligate. It can furnish foreign ministers with intelligence, in those days that meant diplomats, and raise or let fall the credit of the nation, the money supply. This goddess, public relations, flies with a huge looking glass in her hands to dazzle the crowd and make them see, according as she turns it, their ruin in their interest and their interest in their ruin. It really um, was all said in the 18th century, wasn't it? Sorry, um, Alex, John, just before you go on to John Waters, I was just going to say, I don't think even PR can make uh, Liz Truss look good. <laughs> it can't make her speak properly, that's for sure. And uh, Now, John Waters, another Irish uh, intellectual, I would say of equivalent stature to Swift, although he would uh, perhaps uh, modestly deny it, has written some equivalently wonderful prose recently in his latest Substack piece. Substack really is not beloved of the establishment because it allows people to publish their thoughts to the masses. Waters has this purple passage. The few who have no souls seek to abolish the souls of the many out of jealousy. And bear in mind all Debbie's reporting when you think of this. They are unable, that is the, the soulless few, to live with the idea that something so beautiful and so uncontainable, the soul, could at the same time remain to them both vital and obscure, meaning lively and not under their control. They insist on total control, 
to which the human soul represents the chief impediment. You can find that on John Waters Unchained on his substack in a piece entitled Your Government Hates You, for which he's adapted the famous Kitchener First World War paper. Uh, another and finally for me uh, is uh, this meme which is doing the rounds. This is very much related, very much related to World Economic Forum matters. And in extra time, we'll be talking about MPs receiving letters from the World Economic Forum. Uh, one, one has been sent by Sir Desmond Swain to Hugo Talks, which I think will interest our extra time audience. But the general point is that the citizen can cry, I didn't vote for this. But the scorpion on his back, the appointed official, the, uh, the pandemic official, the WHO uh, panjandrum can in internet speak say laughing out loud laughing my anatomy off because he cannot get uh, that the frog cannot get rid of the scorpion in this uh, matter uh, dean skoreko of ukrainian descent uh, probably a canadian ukrainian has noticed in the past week that when trudeau was in the ukraine he was maskless and undistanced and when he turned up in his boring old uh, parliament in ottawa he was masked and distanced just to show how superior he was so that's a pretty telling remark. There's a close-up, not in the best picture quality, but there you go. You can see the difference. And um, just to complete the mugshots of G7, this is actually Emmanuel Macron's current uh, WEF mugshot. Uh, it's his official shot uh, on the, the Schwab uh, establishments page. And this is a recent shot of Tony Blair, the permanent ruler of Britain and our corner of the global world. They are not looking the best these days, are they? And also something from Plymouth. I was in there, Plymouth, recently, as I think viewers know, and I took this cheeky candid from behind of David Scott taking a stroll along the famous seaside there uh, at the, 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 the Plymouth Hoe and uh, alongside a large uh, Union flag, one of the very few which doesn't have other flags defacing or, or, or rivaling it, such as Ukrainian or or Scottish or Welsh flags or whatever, David Scott took this walk and I subtitled it on my Telegram channel, David Scott Contemplates the Nation. While I went out to dinner with David the same evening, I found a couple of odd things about where you are in Plymouth. A, 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 a tub of trees outside a pub down by the, um, the main eatery area, the Barbican, labelled Please Observe Social Distancing, and a tree lit up at dusk in Ukrainian colours. Uh, it all happens down in Plymouth, doesn't it, gentlemen? It certainly does. <laughs> Yeah, excellent. Well, Alex, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as always, we probably need more time to cover all the things that are happening, but that will have to wait for another uh, news. So a big thank you to all our viewers and subscribers. Uh, if you're not already uh, a member of UK Column, please consider joining us. And at the end of the day, we can only do what we do. We can only expand, which is our intention. Uh, with your financial support. So if you can make a donation or sign up with us, that would be really great. Uh, extra time. Yeah, we'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream with some extra. Okay, thank you all very much for joining us. Bye-bye.